Hi, I'm Charlotte and I'm joined by my friend Lauren. Hello. And this is Demythifying, the podcast where two best friends talk mythology, go off on tangents and hope to bring a little bit more forgotten magic to the world. For this special episode, we wanted to celebrate Black History Month. To help us do this, we have asked two of our close friends to join us on this episode. Welcome, Natalie and Rory. Welcome. Hey. Hi. Good to be here. So this was supposed to be a different episode because we didn't know if with the limited time we'd actually be able to find time for all of us to get together to record this. But I'm so, so excited that we're all here tonight. And do you guys both want to introduce yourselves quickly? Natalie? Sure. So, well, I'm Natalie, a close friend of Charlotte's. Um, I calculated, actually, we've known each other for nearly 15 years, which shows our age. <laughs> but our friendship actually started at uni um, by us buying, like, excitedly buying about four bottles of wine, cheap, managing about cheap-ass cheap bottles of wine, <laughs> and then being able to drink about two of those before passing out in our dorms. But I've never actually officially studied classics or Greek mythology. I guess I'm just a, an enthusiast, quite fascinated by the stories and how they've shaped modern society. So this is a nice theme. Um, pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I'm sorry, we've got an intruder on the table, which is why there was just a massive bang. I didn't hear one, actually. I didn't hear one. <laughs> no, I, I did. I saw the vibrations as well. Hey, get away from my drink. <laughs> She's trying to drink Rory's rum now. That's not good. <laughs> oh, I can hear her now. <laughs> yeah, she makes herself known. Um, Rory, do you sorry, want to yeah, um, yeah. Sorry, back, to, the back to the topic. Um, hi, I'm Rory. Um, I'm a good friend of Lauren's. Um, like Natalie, I've actually known Lauren for about probably a little longer than 15 years now. Surely, yeah. yeah. Known each other maybe 19. Yeah, exactly. So uh, if you're if you're showing your age, think about us. Um, <laughs> yeah, no. Um, we 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 met up in secondary school. Only really got to know each other better in college, I guess, wasn't it? Yeah. I am also a big fan of Greek mythology and Intestament mythology in general. Um, not qualified or anything like the, like you two, um, but yeah. So qualified. We're barely qualified. qualified. <laughs> Classic qualified. But yeah, no, um, I'm great. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me on and uh, looking forward to a good show. And you're going to be helping us make the website soon, aren't you? When we have the logo finished. Yes, that is also on my agenda of things to do. So, yeah. As soon as our logo is done, me and Rory are going to be sitting down, nerding out, building the website. Will you go away, please? Natalie will be telling the story of Andromeda today. Natalie, take it away. So Andromeda's story is considered um, to be one of the original princess and dragon stories. So she was a princess in ancient Greek times, um, the daughter of Cephas, who was a king of Ethiopia, also pronounced Ethiopia, <laughs> much like the modern Ethiopia. Although it's not necessarily considered as the Ethiopia, the Ethiopia sorry, that we know today. Um, it's technically Africa. I think it was given the name by Herodotus and um, others to refer to the land immediately south of ancient Egypt. And in modern day, I guess, if we were to calculate looking at ancient maps, it's where Sudan lies now. Although other suggestions are that um, it's on the site of modern day Israel or Syria. So roughly speaking, it refers to Central and South Africa, in addition to potentially the Middle East, but definitely not including Sahara, which was termed as the inhab inhabitable world. <laughs> Um, but back to the story, I digress. So um, Cassiopeia, 
starts to boast that Andromeda is beautiful, Um, Cassiopeia, of course, being her mother, more beautiful than the sea nymphs um, narrates. And Poseidon does not like this. He becomes very angry. So he sends out the sea monster um, Cetus to wreak havoc on the coast of Ethiopia. Cephas consulted with an oracle and was told that in order to save the land from this divine punishment, his daughter Andromeda um, needed to be chained to a rock, naked, of course, because no beautiful woman can be chained to a rock with clothes on, <laughs> in his in, in sacrifice. <laughs> and this would be the only thing to appease the gods. However, she, of course, being uh, saved by the knight in shining armor, uh, shining armor, Perseus. Perseus, of course, I think there's a moment clearly where this, this beautiful princess is chained to a rock and uh, Perseus is negotiating with her father as to whether he can marry her and in return, therefore, he will free <laughs> Andromeda. <laughs> this is all perfect timing, by the way. I can imagine this in the movie. So, of course, the father agrees um, for the hand in marriage um, and therefore Perseus uh, slays the monster. Um, But then at the wedding feast, there's more drama because um, the man that she, well, uh, Andromeda had been previously promised to, who was her uncle Phineas, turns up and tries to claim her. Perseus uses, therefore, the head of the Gorgon Medusa, who he's previously slain in another story. Um, and of course, turns the uncle into stone and guides Andromeda to safety. So we've got um, some frescoes, um, like paintings from first century AD. And you can see that there's like various whitewashing, I guess. Some of the pictures don't necessarily suggest that Andromeda is in fact black. No, this mosaic doesn't, doesn't say it at all, does he? I guess to talk a bit more about the future, so Andromeda um, bears Perseus seven sons, two daughters, incredible woman, and she becomes the queen of Mycenae and Perseus, is it Mycenae? Is that how you say it? I would say Mycenae, but... I've said Mycenae. That sounds right. (laughs) Mycenae. We literally just wing the pronunciations. Yeah. And Perseus would go on to be considered the ancestor of the Persians. Not Andromeda, though. Of course, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Athena promises um, Andromeda a place in the sky after her death. And this becomes the Andromeda constellation. In the fresco, he actually looks darker than she does. We're going to put all of the pictures that we're going to talk about on the Insta, of course. But he looks so much darker than she does. He looks darker and he's holding the head of Medusa above her to guide her to safety. And it's from, I found this on Wikipedia and it's from Pompeii. They found it in Pompeii. We picked the story of Andromeda because I found an article about the whitewashing of Andromeda in Renaissance paintings. And I've got four paintings that I've found. So two of around Renaissance times and two two separate ones. So the first one is Gustave Doré, which is Andromeda exposed to the sea monster. And again, she's naked, chained, chained to a rock. Looking fabulous. The second is Giuseppe Cesari, which is Perseus rescuing Andromeda. And that's from about 1594 to 95. Very white. Very white. Why is there a dog? The sea, monster. the sea monster. The sea monster was a dog. Well, I don't know. It's a sea monster. <laughs> it could be whatever should you it, want it to be. Should it be a goose? <laughs> not, oh, fuck off. I don't know. The dog just looks like it might be a good boy. Like he just know, wants like, to play, I, but it have, doesn't look scary. Yeah, you have a point. I would have expected the sea monster to be like you know, like some kind of massive octopus or squid, <laughs> like yeah. pirates of the Caribbean style. I don't know, exactly, because like, it's Poseidon, right? 
<laughs> I'm I, getting Atreyu vibes from Never-Ending Story. You know, that big old... <laughs> although Atreyu was the good one, right? Yeah. I think yeah, was Atreyu that. was the one that... Mm-hmm. Knew, that yeah. His horse died in the swamp. That, that was sad. That, that upset my childhood. It really did. So Andromeda was basically exposed to a sea dog. <laughs> I would find him naked. Actually, even in the first one, it looks a bit dog-like. Yeah, <laughs> like just weird dog face coming out of the wave well I, i've cut off i've cut off the monster in the third one which is actually it took ages to find so this is bernard Picard's engraving of an abraham van Diepenbeek tableau de temple de musique um and i for ages i was like they look exactly the same what is the difference but one <laughs> is a copy of the other and it's one of the first ones that is used in this article to describe the fact that actually she she would have been dark skinned, she would have been an African princess. And the fourth picture, which I think she looks so fabulous in, doesn't she look like she's having a great time? It looks like more of a party than it does a sacrifice. It does. It's definitely more of a party. If <laughs> I'm going to get sacrificed, this is how I want to be sacrificed. The little head beads on. But I couldn't find the artist. Well, of course she's got head beads on. She's a princess. She's got her jewels. <laughs> yeah. She has to look stunning for the sea monster. That's why I she's mean, naked. No clothes, but jewellery is, is necessary. <laughs> the first two paintings we have discussed have a very white Andromeda as the central figure, whereas in the second two, Andromeda is very clearly black. Ovid uses the term fusca, which means black or brown, to describe Andromeda in his Metamorphoses, and makes reference to Perseus finding her amongst black Indians, but I quote, nor was Andromeda's colour any problem to her winged-footed Ariel lover. Now, Ariel, obviously, because he was um, on the back of his winged horse, Pegasus. Andromeda is described as white in the story of Caraclea whose albinism is explained by her mother in the, Greek, in the ancient Greek story. Her mother states that while she was pregnant, she looked up at a picture of a white-skinned Andromeda. But the story of Claraclea is described in an ancient Greek novel by Helidorus. But she isn't explicitly described as an albino. This is our modern-day interpretation of Caraclea. So it's definitely a whitewashing thing, isn't it? Mm. It makes her more, I don't want to say relatable, but it's almost like that's that's the whole point of it. You have this image of all of the Greek gods and the heroes as being white and more relatable to the masses. But is that only because we're white? Is it because Greeks, I guess, are Caucasian and therefore it's assumed that Greek gods and goddesses are also therefore Caucasian. I think so. Especially like with the Renaissance painters that are doing the painting, it's that they're making it sort of more relatable to the audiences that they would have had. I don't know, it's just my theory. Yeah. I actually prefer the paintings of her black. She looks stunning. <laughs> Especially in the fourth one. She looks like mm. she's going to have a grand old time and not get sacrificed. Yeah. <laughs> By the time Renaissance art comes around, Andromeda is most definitely painted as white by many artists. In film, for both Clash of the Titans films, Andromeda is played by two very white actresses. TheRoot.com suggests this is to convey her virginal essence and to fit in with preconceived ideas of ancient Greece. We say preconceived of um, ideas of ancient Greece, but the ancient Greeks were never outright racist. On the contrary, overall, they have identified the Africans worthy of respect and to be their equals. And we see strong examples of this through Atops 
or Memnum, who was the king of Ethiopia, and they fought alongside the likes of Achilles in the Trojan Wars. So perhaps this is more of a, a reflection upon society and how that's transformed rather than the actual facts or the thoughts of ancient Greeks. That's something that you're going to cover in a minute, aren't you? I am with, indeed. Um, yeah, with your special topic, with with your special topic, <laughs> and um, just looking at how ideas have changed from how the ancient Greeks perceived things to how people perceive them later. Now, have you all heard of the song "I Can" by Nas? If you haven't, I recommend it's a great song. But I just wanted to quote one of the, some of the following, following lyrics. There were empires in Africa called Kush, Timbuktu, where every race came to get books, to learn from black teachers who taught Greeks and Romans. I looked into this and I found that Kush was actually a region in Northern Africa, roughly where Sudan currently is now. Now, keen-eyed listeners may be thinking, but wait, I thought that was Ethiopia, and you would be right. In the Iliad, the term Ethiopian is used to refer to, as they put it, burnt-faced people, and Ethiopia was the common term used for the land in which these people inhibited. Speaking of the Iliad, it's said to have been written between the 7th and 8th centuries BC, at least 1700 years after the completion of the pyramids in 2500 BC. Its author, Homer, if he was indeed one person, studied in Africa for seven years and his studies included law, philosophy, religion, astronomy and pol politics. And Homer certainly wasn't the first. Thales of Miletus, widely regarded as the first Western philosopher and the father of science, studied in Africa and encouraged his students to go there also. I wish I had a teacher maybe go one told me to go to Greece. Not Greece, Africa even. I love Diodor that you've written out how to pronounce it. I did not do that for Natalie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like you he did that for him. He did that I did for that for myself, yeah. <laughs> for myself. I didn't do didn't that. Make it, didn't, didn't want to make a fool of myself. Um, <laughs> Why not? We do. Uh, yeah. I've got standards now I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> you've met us. <laughs> <laughs> Diodorus Siculus, the Greek writer, stayed in Egypt for a while and noted that many Greeks who were celebrated for their learning and intelligence went to Africa to study and bring that knowledge back to Greece. Pythagoras and Socrates both studied in Africa too, and Socrates admitted he studied medicine and philosophy in Egypt. There are various papyruses written about medicine. The oldest known one is the Cahoon Papyrus, which was written between 2133 and 1766 BC, which features gynecological treatments there's also the Hearst Papyrus, written in 2000 BC, which covers a range of ailments from a tooth that's fallen out to a bite from a hippo. We've talked about how scary hippos are, haven't we? I was about to say, if anyone knows what a hippo looks like and how they can attack humans, you aren't going to get healed from a bite from a hippo. <laughs> I think half of your body would be missing, to be honest. Pretty much, yeah. I'm not sure they're going to heal that, but, you know, best of luck to them. Oh, <laughs> tooth would be the least of your worries. <laughs> Uh, and there's also the Ebers papyrus, written in 1550 BC, which features herbal remedies. It's kind of crazy that the earliest evidence we have of the Greeks writing is about 1400 BC. But just looking at this, the Egyptians were so far ahead of them. It's not really any surprise that people went there to learn. There's so much evidence emerging now at how medically advanced the Egyptians, Egyptians were. There's a temple called the Temple of Kom Ombo, and on the walls, there are records of the medical tools used in operations, and they include things like a birthing chair, forceps, and the origin of the modern-day Rx prescription symbol. Dr. Jackie Campbell, who is a researcher at the University of Manchester in biological e Egyptology, has stated that 
classical scholars have always considered the ancient Greeks, particularly Hippocrates, as the fathers of medicine. But our findings suggest that the ancient Egyptians were practicing a credible form of pharmacy and medicine much earlier. Sadly, there isn't much of the temple left standing thanks to the River Nile, earthquakes, and even builders who have used the stones for other building works. The supposed father of medicine, Hippocrates, was born in 333 BC, so about 2,000 years after the Egyptians were performing procedures. So maybe we need to rename the Hippocratic Oath. Well, if you're going to, then you'd need, you could rename it the Imhotep Oath. He was born in 2,800 BC and was the world's first recorded multi-genius. And we shouldn't get, forget that the medical term caesarean section comes from a procedure carried out by Egyptian doctors in 47 BC, when doctors delivered Cleopatra VII's son Caesarian by what we now know as a C-section. Thales, when he went to Egypt, was introduced to the Kemetic mystery system at Temple Universities, and this was a system that had evolved over 4,500 years. The process of this system was supposed to take 40 years to learn, but no Greek made it through the whole way. Pythagoras went the furthest with 23 years spent there. The Greeks then seemed to put their own spin on what they'd learned there. My understanding is that the Greeks never hid the fact that they went to Egypt to learn. So why is it something that almost seems hidden? Like the Greek philosophers created philosophy and nothing really came before. Well, there are two theories as to why this could be. The first is because Kemetic science is a mixture of science and religion. As the Greeks took this knowledge and adapted it, it became more focused on reason and science and the religious side was phased out. The modern age of enlightenment came from the Greek stress on reason, so maybe the consensus was that credit didn't need to be given to Kemetic science. The other reason could be argued to be a tad more sinister. During the 19th century, many European writers, limited by ethnocentrism and racism, decided that Black Africa could have had nothing to do with Europe's rise to greatness. That's a quote from Gloria Dickinson, professor of African-American studies at the College of New Jersey. I know this is a couple of weeks ago. Well, it'll be even more at the point that this episode goes out. But can we just address how sad the death of Michael K. Williams was? I first discovered him on The Wire and he was incredible in it. Now, have you seen The Wire? I haven't, actually. Oh, none of you have seen it. No. I'm not going to talk about it too much now that I know that none of you have seen it. But there was something that I wanted to mention that relates to it that I thought was super, super interesting. So Michael K. Williams plays a character called Omar, who is such a great character, like even Barack Obama loves his character. But I wanted to reference a particular scene where Omar is with a police officer and Omar is sort of lives on the street. He's not someone that you would consider to be intelligent or educated, particularly by looking at him and just how he is. But Omar's with this police officer and this officer is doing a crossword. And the particular question that the officer is struggling with is Greek god of war and Mars doesn't fit and Omar corrects the officer that the god is Ares and he mentions in school that he used to love the myths that's in quotation marks the creator of the show David Simon writes in his book The Corner a year in the life of an inner city neighborhood that children in Baltimore pay little attention to most lessons but pay particular attention and appreciation to Greek myths so obviously that's reflected in Omar's character. And I just found it really interesting. And I've read a lot of, consp- of comparisons online to The Wire, sort of a liking in it to Greek tragedy and sort of in how it's been styled and comparing characters directly to characters in Greek myths. 
but I'm not going to give any potential spoilers away in case you ever decide to watch it, which you all should. I want to now. <laughs> it's so, yeah. honestly, it's so good. It's been on my list for a while, to be fair. I've just been lazy yeah. around it. Yeah. It's, it's carried so away good. with But maybe I will stop. Maybe start. I'll go home tonight and watch it. You should. Omar is, is like an OG. He's fantastic. So guys, normally we ask each other questions at the end of an episode, but today we're going to turn the spotlight on you both. Ta-da! <laughs> so which of the Olympians, based on your knowledge of them and what you've learned so far from this amazing podcast, do you see yourself as being most similar to? Natalie, do you want to go first? So Charlotte was asking me this earlier and I had to have a real think over my rum and coke. And I came down to the decision of all the Olympians, I would say Artemis is the one I feel most affinity to. Not because they're a twin, I'm not a twin, (laughs) but because they're apparently the um, god of wild things, the lady of wild things. And whilst their twin, of course, is associated with the sun, Artemis is actually associated with the moon. And I consider myself to be a bit of a a night stalker. (laughs) So I would go with that. I would have to say um, Apollo, you know, the god of the sun, you know, because I like to think that I brighten everyone's days. Okay. You need to Even learn more about stories sides. of Apollo because I don't think he does much brightening. I mean, he's, he's yeah. <laughs> Look, that's by the by, okay? You know, he's a god of sun, so. He is a god of the sun, that's yeah. true. And the sun is bright, and I brighten people's days. So. And he's the sun, he's the god of plague also. I know that, but let's not forget, forget that. Let's go with the sun. Yeah, okay, so. we'll go with the sun. We'll go, we'll go with the good stuff. And our second question, which is most important, would you both like to come and hang out with us again, uh, get our drink on and talk mythology, especially with some that we've mentioned today, like Carrie Clayer and, and some of the others that we've, we've mentioned? Sure. Absolutely, Absolutely not. No, I will. I will. No, happy, happy come back. So Charlotte, in the edit, you have to cut that out. Any, any horrible oh, things that Rory says, you cut it out. No, I'm oh, going to keep on. that in. Thank you. <laughs> I might even have to lose your phone number after this. Literally, new phone. Keep that in. New phone, who dis? Keep that in. <laughs> Thanks for hanging out with us today. Follow us on Instagram at demythifying the podcast, D E M Y T H I F Y I N G T H E. P-O-D-C-A-S-T for more Olympus-based content. And if you're liking what we're doing, please rate us and subscribe. See you again next time where we talk about two more Sons of Olympus. And we actually do talk about them next time. (laughs) Check us out on Spotify, Audible, Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, and wherever you get your podcasts. She's been Charlotte. I've been Lauren. We've been joined by Natalie and Rory. And together, we've all been demythifying.